When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. Just a reminder that Diet Starts Tomorrow is a podcast for entertainment purposes only. It is not a medical podcast and does not constitute medical advice. Always seek the advice of a physician or a health professional. Betches Media presents Diet Starts Tomorrow. But I stand behind my decision to avoid salad and other disgusting things. With hosts Remy Casimir. I'll have what she's having. And Emily Lubin. Remember, choose like you have a secret. We're here to amuse your boosh. Hello and welcome to Diet Starts Tomorrow. I'm Emily. And I'm Remy. And today we're so excited because we are joined by best-selling author and the host of the Liz Moody formerly Healthier Together podcast, Liz Moody. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, We're very excited to have another health and wellness podcaster in the studio with us. And I've listened to your journey of your career and all that stuff. But what led you specifically to the podcast? Ooh, okay. Do you want the long story, the medium story, or the short story? Uh, maybe the Cliff Notes version. Okay, the Cliff Notes. I had extreme agoraphobia. I couldn't get out of bed. I was having panic attacks all the time. I'd been a journalist for about 10 years. I started emailing experts, mm-hmm. asking what was happening with my anxiety. I put together a toolkit for myself, and I got out of bed, went to the grocery store. I'm now living a life that is not free of anxiety, and mm-hmm. I don't want to promise anybody that, but... I feel certainly significantly better than I did when I couldn't get out of bed. So I wanted to share the types of tools that I garnered for my own problems, my own struggles, with which was anxiety, with other people regardless of what the struggles were. So my podcast is about financial health. It's about our relationships, about our friendships. It's about our gut health. It's really tackling my struggle with it was with anxiety, but Mm -hmm. everybody has different struggles and we all have different struggles at different points in our lives. So I wanted to provide tools for all of those situations. Yeah. And with agoraphobia, is was that something diagnosed or it was just something that you were like, I haven't left the house in months? No, it was diagnosed. I had a therapist at the time Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, it was, it was diagnosed. A remote therapist? Uh, no. So actually, it was really interesting. The only time I would leave the house, I was living in London at the time, was to go to therapy and I would have a panic attack on the tube to therapy. Oh, my God. And I'd have a panic attack on the way home. But I credit that therapist with saving my life. I think if I hadn't found him, I would not be here right now. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. So what specifically was it that kept you from going outside? Was it social interaction? There was a few different things. Often what happens with agoraphobia, and this was certainly part of my situation, is that you become afraid of having a panic attack publicly. Right. And that yeah. fear is what keeps you inside. And then ultimately, I was just so uncomfortable in my body that bed felt like the only safe and secure place. I didn't feel safe and secure unto myself. I needed the comfort of that bed to feel safe and secure. That's relatable. I I think we're both relating to you a lot right now (laughs) because Remy is a self-proclaimed bed person. Yeah, I feel like so often we feel alone in our struggles. We feel like I'm the only one in the Mm -hmm. world dealing with this thing. And that's what happened to me when I was agoraphobic as well. I still remember I went downstairs and I was talking to my roommate at the time and I was so embarrassed. And I was like, I have panic attacks when I leave the house. I'm so anxious about this. And she's like, oh, that happened to a friend of mine. And she was so casual about it. And I think... That's one of the reasons that having these conversations is so important because there are so many people out there struggling with so many things who are feeling alone, completely alone right now. And they're not. They're not alone at all. Mm -hmm. It's like that thing when people are like, you know, raise your hand in class if you have a question, because likely a lot of other people have that question. But everyone's embarrassed to have the question because they think 
I'm stupid if I ask this or I'm weird if I'm going through this. And it's like, no, you're probably going through something that a lot of other people have too. You know what I think that's happening with so strongly right now Mm. is loneliness. I think that so many people are feeling lonely. I get DMs from women all day long, every day who think every other person on the planet has their friendship situation sorted Mm -hmm. and they're the only one in the world who wakes up feeling lonely, who wishes they had a bestie, a girl group, all of these different things, yet all of us feel this way. I'm getting all of these DMs. And I think there's a real, let's all put our hands up. Let's all say, I'm feeling a little lonely so we can start to tackle that. Did you ever hear about that thing, No More Lonely Friends? No. It was uh, this girl on TikTok. uh, This guy made a video that he was like, oh, I overheard a few girls talking shit on their friend that they didn't want to invite to this party or whatever. Like, everyone find Marissa. And TikTok found Marissa. Oh, my God. They always do. TikTok's insane. But but Marissa ended up meeting up with the guy who made the initial video. They became friends. And then she started this whole campaign called No More Lonely Friends. And it was like, if you are feeling like you don't have a friend group or whatever, you can come to these meetups. I went to one of them. And it was so cute because it was so many people that were like, yeah, you might have other friends, but you're also open to making more. And you recently did an episode about making friends later in life. Yeah, making friends as an adult because I do think it's such an under-discussed topic. And like mm-hmm. you said, I think that there's there's something really powerful about having people in your life that are reflecting you at present back to yourself. Yeah. And I think that's why we're all looking for new friends regardless of, you know, we have friends from high school, we have friends from college, we have friends from earlier in our life. But those friends in some ways tend to reflect that self back at us and we've changed and we've grown and we've evolved. And it's so wonderful Mm -hmm. when our friendships can change and grow and evolve too. But I think it's one of the wonderful things about always being open to making friends as an adult. One of my favorite things that happens with my podcast, and this happened completely organically, I did not ask people to do this, but somebody in Denver actually started a podcast club where they met up and talked about the podcast. And now we have them all over the country. It's like a book club, but you just listen yeah. to a podcast episode instead. And I think there's something so powerful about getting together in real life and forming those real life connections. And it starts with admitting that that's what you want and yeah. that that's okay. And it's not embarrassing. It's not yeah. embarrassing at all. Why do you think that a lot of people feel like they're the only one who feels lonely? Like, do you think it's because of social media? It's part of it, certainly. We're all sharing our best selves. But I also think that it's just because we're afraid to be vulnerable. One of the things that was on that friendship episode that you mentioned, it was with Dr. Marissa B. Franco. She's Another Marissa working on friendships. (laughs) She's a friendship psychologist. She has really wonderful research on the subject. But one of my favorite bits of her research, and this is in the book as well, is that we think being vulnerable will make people like us less, but studies show that it makes people like us more. So the more Mm. that we can open up, that we can share who we are, I think that we're going to start to build those friendships. And I think one of the best things that we can do to open up and be vulnerable is to say, I would like more friends. Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. And I wonder if you know, because I've recently learned this, people like you more when you ask them for a favor, like a small mm-hmm. favor, like, can I borrow a pen or something? Really? Like it's been shown. Yeah. Because they feel like they're being helpful to you. Mm. And so that kind of bonds you. And this is why I really like your podcast. Cause you use like science based information yeah. to actually improve one's own life. Um, and there are all these studies that, that show, but like asking somebody for a favor, I used to think, oh, well, I would just be a burden to them. Even asking for a pen, I'm like, can I please have your pen? You know, it it gave me such anxiety, but it mm-hmm. actually ingratiates you to people. It does. And there's also really interesting research that I'm not sure if it's the reason behind that, but it's certainly peripherally related, which is that us giving people advice often makes us feel better than receiving advice because it reminds us of our resilience mm-hmm. and what we have to offer the world. So One of the tips in the book, it's from Dr. Katie Milkman, who's a Wharton behavioral scientist. I absolutely love her. Um, But she has a tip to start an advice club. 
And you can benefit in an advice club both from receiving advice from your peers. You can say, I have this problem. Mm -hmm. Can you please help me work on this? But also you're benefiting even more in some ways by sharing advice with other people and answering their problems and helping them with their issues. That's why mentorship is a two-way street. The mentor is really getting as much out of the relationship as the mentee. And it's because the mentor is reminding themselves, wow, look at everything I know. Look at all of these ways that I can give things to the world. Look at everything I have to offer. And so I think when you ask somebody for a favor, you're reminding them of their competence in a really beautiful way. It's almost a action-based way to give a compliment. I love giving directions. And I love being asked to give directions because I'm like, one, you think I look friendly. Two, you think I look smart. And local. Mm-hmm. And local, so yeah. So if you self-identify with the city that you're being asked for, like I was asked for directions once in Paris mm. and I was like, <gasps> oh my God, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And they were like, oh, okay, we're gonna walk away from you because yeah. you're clearly American. <laughs> but you felt French I for felt a French hot minute. For, for one second, yeah. Speaking of your podcast, we were just curious because you recently changed the name. Yes. It used to be Healthier Together. Yeah. Now it's the Liz Moody podcast. What, what inspired the name change? I've always defined healthy as something that encompasses all different parts of your life. Mm-hmm. First of all, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that experts portray wellness as is like, oh, it's in a silo. You have your gut health. You have your longevity. You have your hormone health. You have your relationships. When in fact, your microbiome impacts your brain health. We know that. It's the gut-brain axis, that mm. science. Your brain health, your mental health, that's going to impact your relationships and the way you show up at work. The way you show up at your work and your relationships are going to impact your stress, which we know, again, according to science, has a huge impact on your microbiome. So if you're addressing any of these things individually, you're never really going to get to the root of your problems and you're Mm -hmm. always going to feel like you're a step away. You're just not grasping living your best life. And I think it's one of the biggest problems we run into when we're getting this information independently rather than all connected together. So I've always approached health as your relationships, your finances, your sex life, your food that you're eating, your workouts that you're doing, your meditation, all these different things. But I think people have the perception on a broader sense that health is only supplements, nutrition, et cetera. And I really didn't want to limit people's perception of the podcast. We have episodes about the pros and cons of having kids. We have episodes about making friends as an adult, all these things. And I wanted the name to encompass that because we encompass all the things. It's about being moody. (laughs) It's definitely got space for all of that. You know, both of my parents are psychologists and then my sister is getting her PhD in psychology too, which I just think is funny with my last name. Yeah, Yeah, psychology family. Dr. Moody. Yes. I go (laughs) there to feel less moody. I love that. I love when people's last names match their uh, livelihood. Like I I used to go to this hair salon called Kathy Hair Mm -hmm. and Kathy was cutting my hair one day and, and I was like, what's your last name? She goes, Hair. So there's research on, I mean, there's obviously the history of like, if you were the Smithy, your last name would be Smith. Yeah. But also there's some really interesting research. And I know this because I changed my own name when I was 12. So I did a deep dive into the science behind names. Amazing. But we often- Your first name or your last name? My first name. I'm my Elizabeth is my middle name. Oh. Um, (laughs) I was going to say, I changed my name for a summer to Kelly. (laughs) Kelly? Yeah. Was it just a cool name? No, my uh, cousin's au pair was named Kelly and I thought she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen and I wanted to be Kelly. And then I met this other Kelly in my camp group who uh, couldn't Ruined follow choreography. And I was like, I'll be Remy <gasps> again. I love <laughs> that. All Kellys are created equal. Yeah. I spent an entire summer trying on different names mm-hmm. to see what I wanted to change my name to. And like Blueberry was on there. Like I really oh, had, hell yeah. I had some options. I'm sorry, Blueberry Moody? Blueberry, I know. I know. That's like, a movie star name. I know. Blue Moody? I know. I Moody missed, Blues? I miss the, uh, I miss my chance, you know? Um, <laughs> Did you just really not like your first name? I didn't, no. It's, I, it just never felt like me. And so I was moving from my mom's house in Arizona to my dad's house in California. And I was like, this, this is, is my the chance. time. Yeah, if yeah. I'm ever going to do it. And I've always been a fan of reinventing oneself. Like I remember my parents were divorced and I'd go away for the summer and I'd always be like, I'm going to come back a new person Mm -hmm. after the end of the summer. And I felt like this was like my shot to become the person that I, that I wanted to be. But there's research that shows that we often gravitate towards jobs that match our names because we're all a little bit narcissistic. And so we've been like hearing in a really subconscious way about that job our entire life. Like 
hearing the word hair over and over and over and we're like, I like hair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, it was her husband's name. So maybe she chose her husband because Mm, she was a hairstylist. Maybe. Maybe subconsciously. But enough about Kathy hair. I mean, (laughs) she's an incredible woman. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S.com. This episode is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always find the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you, Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for this season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription clothing rental service. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. Access to thousands of styles from more than 400 brands. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. They also have inclusive sizing up to 5X as well as petite and maternity. And you always have the option to buy what you love. I love Newly. I've rented so many cute things from there, and I've even made a few purchases from there. And They're always spot on. They have so many brands that I honestly could never afford in real life. So it's great to be able to rent them. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles. But right now, you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code DST20. Just go to Newly, that's N U U L Y dot com, and enter the code DST20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y dot com, newly with two U's, with code DST20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. You've had so many experts on your podcast and the topics are just all over the place. Literally, if you guys look at the topics of this podcast, like there is something for everybody and the titles of them are so like... Ooh, I need, I need Thank to listen you. to that. That's my editorial background. I have decades of yeah. writing titles yeah. and I feel, I feel like I put the that content to is good too, but yes. the t- I'm like, oh my God, They're that's grabby. exactly what you need to hear today. But are there any episodes that helped you specifically? Mm, that's a great question. I haven't asked the doctor happiness edition and that's with Dr. Rick Hansen from UC Berkeley. I feel like mental health is personally a really huge struggle for me. So that's one that I come back to and listen to again and again. I have one that I've been sharing a lot recently, and it's about how to have hope in times that feel really hard Mm. and how to kind of grasp at a feeling of personal resilience without sticking your head in the sand or having toxic positivity. That's from Dr. Susan David at Harvard. I love that one. I come back to that Whenever there's a political situation that feels hard, whenever there's a climate situation that feels hard, I really developed that episode as a tool for that type of thing to come back to again and again. For physical health, I have one about metabolic health that I really, really like because metabolic health is such a baseline important thing. And I think we're going to be hearing about it even more and more in the years to come uh, as such a critical part of how we feel on a day-to-day basis and on a long-term basis. I'd say those are those are three that I'm and really metabolic enjoying. health is maintaining That's, your metabolism or yeah essentially metabolism and the concept of metabolism has gotten a really bad rap from mm-hmm. 90s diet culture yeah. and all the magazine covers and all of that but your metabolic health is essentially how your body powers itself it's the energy that all of your cells need to perform their daily functions so keeping your metabolic health strong is going to be the thing that gives all of the cells in your body what they need to thrive. So that'll have downstream effects on your hormones, on your energy, on your mental health, everything in your body. Cool. Speaking of bodies, you have several episodes with 
really great guests and they are called How I Learned to Love My Body and they are those people's journeys. How did you learn to love your body? I'm a work in progress. Great. I want to say love that. To hear it. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey, but I'm happy to say that I'm much further down that road now than I have ever been in my life. It's hard. I want to acknowledge that it's hard because we are receiving messages on a day-to-day basis, thousands of messages. We are breathing these messages from the moment that we wake up about how we should look and how we should feel about our bodies. And to counter that messaging almost feels like a full-time job sometimes. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that if you have a tricky relationship with your body, it's not your fault. You are a product of the culture in which we live, where a lot of people are trying to sell us stuff by making us feel like that we are not enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that switched my view of my body the most is realizing that my body is for living, not looking. It's a mantra. I say it to myself. I say it to my audience over and over. My body is for living, not looking. My body is not here to be perceived by other people. My body is for me to do the things that I want to do with my life. And in a micro moment, when I'm able to switch my thought process, when I'm working out, I'm not looking at my abs because that's my body being for looking, not living. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, this is going to help my mental health today. This is going to help me sleep better. This is going to give me the energy that I need to thrive. After my workout, I'm really zeroing in on how I feel in that moment, how the workout made me feel instead of looking at the curvature of my butt in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And I think at every single moment that my brain tries to tip me towards your body is for looking, not living, I say, no, how can I switch it to living right now? How can I focus on what my body is here and designed to do? Because I know, I know so strongly that when I am 85, 90, 100 years old and I'm looking back at my life, I'm going to regret every single moment that I let fears about cellulite or a little bit of tummy fat or the way that my arms looked get in the way of me enjoying every single second of this precious time that I have on this planet. Yeah, I I relate to that too, especially with the post-workout looking at your body because there was something that would happen to me that I would get a little more bloated post-workout or whatever. And I'd go, oh, well, why did I even do that? And now I hate myself or whatever. It's like, no, just like relish the fact that you went to the gym. I could not get myself to work out consistently when I was working out to look a certain way. Because it never happens quickly enough to actually be motivating. And when you focus on how it makes you feel to work out, I actually find it significantly more motivating. Mm -hmm. So then I started to be able to actually incorporate it into my life. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. We, I mean, we say that all the time that like it, you're, you can have aesthetic goals, but that can't be the only goal because it's just not going to serve you long term. It's only going to serve you long term if you're like really tuning in and noticing how you feel. And if you work out consistently, chances are you are going to feel pretty good because um, you're going to get those endorphins and you're just you're going to feel good. But what do you think about having aesthetic goals in general? Like, yeah, if somebody I'm a little was like, iffy with it because I'm like, I, am I little- don't even know if you know, can achieve certain things sometimes. Well, you can't achieve, like certain bodies can't achieve, like I don't have the physiology that I can get a dump truck ass. I'm never going to have penis lines. Like, well, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But, but when I was in the gym and I was like, oh, I really want to build up my butt. That was motivating for a time. I fell off of it because I was like, I can't do this forever, like being in the gym four days a week doing legs. But I guess my question is, are aesthetic goals ever helpful? I believe that the more intrinsic self-worth we have, the less external affirmation that we need. Aesthetic goals are always based on external affirmation. And I would love for us to move on a societal level to a place where we are so we feel so intrinsically worthy that we don't need somebody to look at us and perceive us in a certain way. Right. Unless you're getting the butt because you love to grab your own butt. (laughs) I mean, it it does feel powerful. And it didn't get that big. It's I wasn't walking around. I wasn't Kim Kardashian over here. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting that you even say that because even in a small way there, you're pointing out how much on a societal level, the aesthetic goals change all the time. Aesthetic goals are designed to be unattainable because the second they're attainable, people aren't able to sell you anything and they're not able to make any money anymore. The whole 
industry of people not feeling like enough is based off of people trying to make money off of you. The second you attain it, they can't do that. That's the same reason why there's an entire industry built around anti-aging because the one thing mm-hmm. that we all have to do every single day is age. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a industry that will not run out. So for me, aesthetic goal should not be the goal because there's never a moment. There's not a single moment in the world that society will allow you to attain them. And the second that you think you do, it's going to switch. It's going to be a different yeah. ideal. There are so many different beauty ideals in different cultures and stuff. And I don't know if I've ever brought up hot in Cleveland on this podcast before, but the entire like thing about hot in Cleveland, the show from a while ago, it's that these women go to Cleveland and they realize that they're really hot in Cleveland. <laughs> So they just stay there where like I've had friends that have gone to different countries and they don't feel great in America. But in other countries, they're like the beauty standard or whatever. Or they're and looked at a lot because they look looked different. At a, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I had Paulina Portskova on the podcast yes. and yeah. she's a model and she's very comfortable with aging and nudity. And mm-hmm. she, I asked her how she came to be like that. It was um, and she said that a lot of that came from being raised in Europe and people are naked and they have wrinkles and they're just more comfortable with their bodies growing and evolving and changing with time and representing that they are growing and evolving and changing with time. Yeah, it's really the US that does a lot of the most anti-aging stuff because I watch a ton of Australian shows and they've got older people that look amazing and have so many wrinkles and it's just a completely different standard. And that points to the importance of having role models in these sectors of our lives. There's a tip in the book from Dr. Becca Levy at Yale, and it's about how you can add literally 7.5 years to your life by having positive aging beliefs. Literally 7.5 years you will live longer if you have positive aging beliefs. That means, and once you become aware of negative aging beliefs, like it is in the anti-wrinkle cream, but it's also in that like joking card at the greeting card store that says like, oh, you're over the hill at 30. Uh We've talked about cards before. All of your friends who are like, oh, I'm in my 30s. I can't go out dancing anymore. Mm -hmm. It's in all of the shoulds that we tell ourselves about aging. And one of the best ways to combat that and to have positive aging beliefs is to look for positive aging role models, looking for people who are thriving who are embracing the wisdom and life and the experiences that they yeah. had yeah there's a club in london called annabelle's you heard mm, of it? yeah and it's like everybody goes no matter what age you are and nobody's looking around being like what's that old person and they don't here? turn that people away person? yeah for being too yeah. old who says that people stop liking to dance when they turn yeah. 30 yeah that's wild to that me. is wild i mean personally i'm not out clubbing like the way that I used to, because I just don't like it. Like it? Yeah, but some people do like it. I and, love you know. dancing. It's why I love weddings so much is because I feel like they play the best music mm-hmm. and you can just go dance the night away. I also don't love like an unce unce, you know, right. yeah. like flashy light club situation. Everyone's sweating on you. See, I've never been to Annabelle's, but my 70-year-old father told me about it. Ooh, and he oh, loved, wow. And he's not a clubber, but he loves the fact that people of all ages can go there and there's no judgment. Dancing is such a primal, intrinsic, like, human experience and i think the more all of us can have access to that and not just when we're drunk and 25 the Mm -hmm. better warmer weather is finally back after so many cold months it's nice to get outside and soak up the sun but the springtime always brings those unwanted guests pollen and seasonal allergies april showers bring spring flowers and sniffly noses and stuffed up sinuses. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. I suffer from seasonal allergies. I just had them hit the other day. I couldn't breathe through my nose at all. And I popped a Claritin and it was like night and day. I'm a huge fan of Claritin. I use it on the regular and it always helps when we're making that transition from winter to spring, which is when my allergies flare up. Mainly it's my sinuses that get so clogged and the Claritin just clears it right up. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients 
ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy throat and nose, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live your life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. What I love about Shopify is basically how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. I know we use Shopify here at Betches, and honestly, anyone with any kind of business could really benefit from Shopify. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash betches, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash betches now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash betches. So we mentioned the book a few times. You've written several books, Glow Pops, Healthier Together, and now your newest book is 100 Ways to Change Your Life. Uh, It comes out October 17th. Congratulations. Thank you. Where did this idea about changing your life come from, and who is the book intended for? The book is intended for anybody who wants tiny tools, tiny things that they can do that are grounded in science that will have a real effect on their lives. I found myself going to the self-help, the personal growth section of bookstores, and I would read the books and I would feel kind of good while I was reading them. I'd be like, "Mm, yeah, this is really nice. Like, I feel good about myself. And then I would close the book and be like, well, what do I actually do now? Mm. And there is so much incredible science out there. I wanted to make that science interesting. I wanted to make that science fun. And I wanted to make that science grounded in action. Mm -hmm. And that's what this book does. So for every tip, and there's a hundred of them, and it's not meant to be read all at once. You can leave it out on your coffee table. When you feel like your friendships need a little bit of work, you pick up that section of the book, you read it. When you feel like you want to have a little bit more energy, you read that section of the book. You can read a tip in about five to 10 minutes while your pasta water is boiling, while you're doing your morning routine. And you'll get the science, it'll be made really accessible and fun, and then you'll get an action step that you can do today. I love that. What's your take on uh, positive affirmations? Because when you said self-help, that's my mind immediately went there. Like that seems to be the um, the main thing that I've been told is like, tell yourself you're beautiful, tell yourself you're capable, like- Write it on your mirror. Yeah. What, what do you think about stuff like that? The place where that falls down is when we don't have self-trust. If we are telling ourselves in the mirror, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're awesome, you can do this, but you haven't built a foundation of self-trust, you're not going to believe yourself when you're saying those (laughs) things in the mirror. You're not going to believe those affirmations. And every single time that you break a promise to yourself, you're eroding that self-trust. So when you tell yourself, I'm not going to reach for my phone this morning, and then you reach for your phone anyway, that's you breaking your self-trust. When you tell yourself, I'm going to go for a run today. And then you don't go for a run. That's you breaking your self-trust. So I think that affirmations can be a really powerful tool in our toolkit, but they need to be built off of a foundation of us keeping the promises to ourselves that will let us build the relationship where we believe those affirmations. Mm -hmm. I've actually heard that before, like keep the promises that you make to yourself. And it can be hard, like obviously if you wake up and you're like, I'm going to go to the gym after work, but then you have a long day at work and you're so tired and, and whatever. But in your experience, like did did you used to have a problem keeping promises to yourself? Like, have you noticed that as a personal change? 
I just did an episode about how to get out of a slump. Yeah. And it shares a bunch of science back tips to get out of a slump. But one of the core key tips in it is to set the bar lower. So you're just like, oh, I want to go to the gym after work. That might be too high of a bar for you right now. Maybe the bar is I want to do a 10-minute online at-home workout. Mm -hmm. Set the bar somewhere that you can stick to it every day. So again, you can start to build that self-trust and then you can increase the goals. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Do you happen to have a chapter on faking it till you make it? Because I heard a story that you told about getting an interview with Hootie and the Blowfish when you were like (laughs) 15 and you basically lied to them and said that you worked for a publication. I not, didn't not disclose. It was an omission. Yeah. <laughs> lied by an omission. Um, but that you were like, yeah, I already have this job and I am this person and can you give me an interview? And then you leveraged that interview to get an actual <laughs> journalism job. Yeah. Um, that was my first writing job That's insane. <laughs> Um, and then- but you're a creative. That's a very creative way to mm-hmm. get a job. Okay, so this is a slightly different take on fake it till you make it. Uh But I believe that action precedes confidence. I think that confidence comes from taking action. And if we sit around and wait until we're confident to take action, we'll never take the action that we need to take. One of my life mottos and one of the things that I've heard the most inspiring stories from my audience about is never be the one to say no to yourself. Mm. This is what was in action with me and my Hootie and the Blowfish interview. <laughs> Such a 90s feeling story. I know. Story. The um, best. <laughs> but the idea is that the world can tell you no, but I want you to not be the person to tell yourself no. Mm. Because you can go out there and you can ask for the interview. You can ask for the raise. You can ask out that cute person that you see across the bar. And maybe you'll get no's from all of them, but far more often often than you think, you're going to get yeses. And you're telling yourself that you believe in yourself. And even if the world doesn't believe in you, you telling yourself that you believe in yourself is a powerful, powerful message that your brain is internalizing. And on the flip side, you telling yourself you don't believe in yourself, you pushing yourself down before you even take the leap, your brain's internalizing that too. Yeah. I mean, I've turned down several things because I'm like, oh, I'm not ready for that. And I think that has to do with imposter syndrome. Sometimes I think I'm just like, no, this is me being really smart and knowing what I'm ready for. But you're saying just just take the leap. I am. I am. So there's there's a few different ways we can go research wise with this. One is research from um, Dan Pink. He did a global study of what people regretted the most in life. And one of the things that they regretted the most, by and large, was not taking risks. Mm. They He found in his research that if you took a risk, even if it failed, you tended to have fewer regrets than if you didn't take the risk. So I'd say, in general, take the leap. Secondly, there's incredible science that shows the vast majority of us, the vast majority of us have imposter syndrome. So if you don't do something because you think that you're an imposter, you think you're not qualified, the person who's going to do it instead of you has imposter syndrome too, likely, statistically. They're just doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite inspirational quotes comes from the iconic movie, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Oh, and it's such a good movie. It's such a good movie. (laughs) And it's your odds go up when you file an application. A hundred (laughs) percent. Like sometimes we tell ourselves that we can't do something or like it's not for us and you... I think you see that a lot when applying to jobs. You're like, oh, well, they need four years of experience. I'm not qualified or whatever. But your odds go up a lot when you file the application. You have no odds when you don't file the application. Mm -hmm. When you're saying no to yourself, you're not even giving the universe a chance to say yes to you. I've heard from so many people who've gotten jobs they didn't think they were qualified for, who've gotten raises they didn't think they were qualified for, got houses because they wrote a note to the house owner. There are so many success stories that come just from being willing to put your hat in the ring. I wouldn't have any of my book deals if I had sat around and wait until I felt like I was qualified. Right. You learn by doing. We learn by doing. Everybody has imposter syndrome. I've had world-class experts on my podcast who have given TED Talks that are viewed by hundreds of millions of people who run billion-dollar companies and they have imposter syndrome, who are famous actors and actresses, they have imposter syndrome. Everybody has imposter syndrome. So why let somebody else with imposter syndrome take your place? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a really good way to put it, actually. Like if also if we're all imposters, then none of us are. Yeah. In a way. No. But you also like you can look at people and be like, oh, you literally had no idea what you were doing. And then you just started. And sometimes it works out really well and they do a really good job. And sometimes it doesn't. But like. But you learn. Put yourself in the room. Yeah. And you yeah. get again, confidence comes from taking action. If you sit back and don't take the actions that you need to take, you're never going to gain the skills, the knowledge, and the confidence to take those actions because you learn those things by doing the thing. Yeah. I also, I recently listened to your 100th episode and you had applied to a job uh, a while ago and you flew from California (laughs) to New York to do the interview. And then that interview didn't happen. But while you were there, you were like, okay, let's see if I can make something else happen. Like none of that would have materialized if you hadn't sent the first resume. Yeah, you did your research. I'm impressed. <laughs> a little bit. Um, no, I literally got the email when the plane landed. I have struggled with a fear of flying my entire life. So for me, the email wasn't just, oh, we're canceling your interview because we decided to hire internally. Mm-hmm. It was like, I risked my life <laughs> to get here <laughs> and you're not even going to take an interview with me. And I gave myself a week to see if I could find a job. And I got three offers by the end of the week. And that was what let me move to New York City, which was a lifelong dream. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Another thing that you talk about a lot is building healthy relationships and how that can be a main component of one's own health. And um, and you're married, correct? I am. What do you think are the building blocks of a healthy relationship? Like, what does that mean to you? So I've been with my husband for 15 years and there are so, first of all, I just want to say that relationships are hard and there are ebbs and there are flows. I hear from audience members all the time who are like, I don't feel madly in love with my partner right now. And I'm like, that's okay. If you're in a relationship for years and years and years, every single moment is not going to feel like the blissful honeymoon stage. Mm -hmm. And that is normal and that is expected and that is fine. One of the keys to a healthy relationship is communication. And I think we hear that a lot, but we don't know what that actually looks like in practice. So I'm going to share an example. For years, years and years and years, I was like, why doesn't my husband want to celebrate our anniversary? Like he would kind of wish me a happy anniversary. He'd be like, oh, are we making a restaurant? Like, what are we doing tonight? And I'd be like, oh my God, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. I can't believe he's not making a big deal out of this. And then one year I said, I would love for our anniversary this year if you would plan an entire day that had a theme of me, that just felt really (laughs) (laughs) intentional and about me. And he said, huh, thank you so much. I would love to do that. Thank you for giving me the information. He planned the best day I have. We started with paddle boarding. We went and cuddled baby goats. Ah, we went oh. to a Michelin starred Indian restaurant. It was the most Liz themed day and it was absolutely spectacular. He felt better because he didn't have to read my mind to figure out how to love me. He could just be free to put that same effort into loving me. Mm. I felt better because I got what I'd been wanting all along. We Our partners want to love us. They want to make us feel cared about, but they are not mind readers. We need to give them the tools to love us in the way that we want to be loved. And a lot of relationships fall down because we're waiting for our partners to magically read our minds and we're punishing them, we're punishing ourselves and we're feeling like something is lacking with our relationship because that's not happening. Yeah, I there was one day that I asked Ben because he's not like a, a big poster on Instagram or whatever, but he's a great videographer, great editor or whatever. And I was like, could you make me like a trailer of what it's like to date me? <laughs> I love you know, that's like fun. what I does that look that. like? And it, he just started quietly filming me over the next year or whatever and it was like he put together this compilation of Remy's dance moves because he was just like that's what it's like to be with you is you're always dancing and it's always it always looks a little funky my heart yeah and that it was is really so cute sweet but if you hadn't asked for that you wouldn't I get gotten it. it yeah and there's so many people out there feeling a want a desire that they haven't even expressed to their partner so they haven't even given them the opportunity to give it to them for sure so it's about setting clear expectations or like telling like straight up telling your partner what would make you happy. I think it's a two step process. And I think both steps are very important. The first step is figuring out what you actually want. 
is it what you're seeing on Instagram? Are you actually jealous of this part of somebody's relationship? Right. If somebody actually did that for you, like if somebody, I used to be so jealous of public proposals and then I realized I would die. Cringe. I would yeah. die yeah. if somebody yeah. proposed to me in public. And, but I, I liked the spectacle of it. I wanted people to celebrate me in that way. So I think identifying in a very niche way, what are you responding to? What do you want? What do you wish you had in your relationship? And then expressing that to your partner, giving them the tools to love you in the way that you want to be loved. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying public proposals are cringe. I'm saying you might cringe if that were you. It, it's so dependent on the person. Yeah. And From, it's also dependent on the proposal. Like if you do um, the baseball game on the screen, I think that's cringe. Unless you love it. Unless you like it. Like it, um, you like if it. If you love it, I saw then that's one amazing. that was on a Jumbotron and the woman only noticed that they were on it but she didn't read the text that it was like, will you marry me? And she was like all excited and hyped that they were just on it or whatever. And then he's like, read the, read the, and then she was like, oh my God. And <laughs> Did it was you see so the one on the cute. Jumbotron where she walked away? Yes, I saw that too. That was see the, scary. Different oh strokes. Oh my God. I, like ominously or no she just was like i don't want to marry you oh, why did Jesus. you do this publicly and then she left that and you never terrifying. know if they've had the conversation beforehand like he might have been like let's get married and she's like no. no and he's like okay then i'm gonna put this public pressure on you and she's like okay cool then i'm gonna leave oh my god terrifying i i will say that the communication around proposals even you don't have to say you don't have to take the romance out of it if you feel that way and say like, oh, I want you to do exactly this, this, and this. But I think having knowledge about what your ideal looks like in that way because a lot of people end up disappointed mm -hmm. when somebody didn't read their mind for something like a proposal. It's a great example of something like that. Have yeah. you and your husband used any of your podcast episodes to strengthen your relationship? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. I mean, first of all, we use every single one simply because I have so much to bring to the conversational table. Yeah. <laughs> I just am like, oh, I, I interviewed this person this week. Let's talk about this. And that's specific to me recording the podcast. But in general, it's a really helpful tip where sometimes we think that our relationships are boring, but in fact, we've just not brought anything new and dynamic and interesting to them. We think, oh, I don't have anything left to talk about with my partner, but have you learned anything new recently? Have you done a new activity together? Mm -hmm. Sometimes all a relationship needs is somebody listening to an interesting podcast and bringing it to the table. My husband and I are starting Article Wednesdays where we each read Fun. an article and then we come to the dinner table and discuss what that article was. And it's like, takes, you know, not very long to just read a quick article, but it spices up the conversation. It breaks us out of our norm and it lets us talk about things that aren't just like, oh, how was your day? Oh, my day was good. I got yeah. in a fight with my business partner. You know what I mean? Yeah. Do you have parameters on uh, how scholarly the article needs to be? Because I feel like I would show up and be like, well, Taylor Swift showed up to the Jets game and he'd be like, I don't care. I think that you need to be a good faith player and we want to spark a discussion here mm -hmm. and as long as you do that you're good to go fair we'll, fair. Do, we'll do kind of like a wikipedia or google dinners together Ooh. where we're like oh i was wondering about this one thing and then we'll kind of go into the history of that thing i together love that pull it apart and that just is try to so learn together fun. yeah that's amazing we do my husband will talk about taylor swift though for hours i've he's been oh, to I the eras tour oh yeah. king um <laughs> you know we've gotten advice questions about what to do if you're concerned about your partner's health yeah particularly if they don't seem as concerned like yeah. there's a, often a disparity between like oh well i care so much about health in the sense of like fitness and eating quote, I'm worried right. about his longevity I'm worried about yeah. which, how lazy she seems to be right and I, I feel like quite often it's um it's a girlfriend about her boyfriend it, that'll be the but dynamic because who, who listens to this of podcast, who listens to the podcast. <laughs> but I'm just curious what advice you would give somebody if they are concerned about their partner's health but the partner doesn't seem to want to talk about it or maybe isn't as concerned it's a tricky dynamic, right? I mean, we are in love with somebody. We want to live the rest of our lives with that person, and we want them to be around for the rest of our lives. Yeah. There's a few things you can do. First of all, you can ask what that person's actual goals are. One of the first tips in the book is called figure out your why, and that's based around the idea that so many of us are trying to incorporate habits and routines, and we don't even know why we're doing them. And when you don't know why you're doing something, if you're doing it because your partner just told you to do it, if you're doing it because you saw it online, it's going to be so much harder to stick to that habit. You should have a why behind every single thing you do, every single supplement you take, 
every single habit that you are spending your precious time on, you wanna have a why behind it. So ask your partner, what are their whys? What are some things we can do that work within your whys? And then you wanna say, what are your roadblocks to those whys? Why are you having a hard time incorporating these habits? Can we begin to work together to overcome these hurdles? You can model good habits yourself and you can talk about why you're enjoying them. What are your whys? Why do you enjoy meditating? Why are you liking working out? How does eating vegetables make you feel versus miserably shoving broccoli in your mouth? Maybe it's about like, I've started adding herbs to my food and it makes it taste really delicious and I'm excited for dinner and I feel so much more energy when I eat this way. So really sharing your whys as well. But at the end of the day, a huge practice for wellness, for relationships, and for life in general is realizing what's in our control and what's out of our control. And you can do all of those things and at the end of the day, your partner is their own person and their actions are their own. And so ultimately they're out of your control. Yeah, and that can be hard to stomach for some of us. It's hard to stomach for life. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, isn't that like one of the biggest struggles of life is that we go around trying to control so many things that are essentially out of our control and we really mm -hmm. have to turn back on ourselves and say, well, what part of this is on my side of the street and what part do I need to work on letting go of? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, somebody wrote in with that type of question and um, and this listener specifically wrote like, I, I want to know if I am the problem because I know that I'm way more focused on other people's perceptions of me mm. than my partner is. And we were kind of like, that's incredible that you can be introspective like that. Like even noticing that you care at a baseline more than your partner and it has to do with other people's perceptions. That's like a level of self-awareness that's really great to have. Mm -hmm. And that would be a powerful conversation to have with your partner as well to open up, to be vulnerable, to share, this is where I'm coming from. This is what I recognize that I'm motivated by and share, and share that. You're a no caffeine person in the morning. Yes, I'm a no caffeine person all day. Yeah. Wild. Me too, for the most part. Yeah, unless somebody just like gives me a tea that happens to have it in it. Is your husband a caffeine person? He is, a, he drinks enough caffeine for both of us. Okay. And it doesn't matter to have two different people that feel differently about it. So the reason that I don't consume caffeine is because caffeine can create something called misattribution in your body. So essentially when you get that jittery heart, when you get the sweaty palms, when you maybe get a little bit of nausea, your body is looking for where those sensations are coming from. And it doesn't know immediately like, oh, that's caffeine. It's cool. I can be calm. It'll go to the most common causes of those sensations, which if you struggle with anxiety is often anxiety. And then your brain, which is very tricky, will be like, oh, I'm anxious. I wonder what I'm anxious about. And it can always, always find, find something yeah. to put on that list. And then you've created this vicious cycle where you actually are becoming anxious because mm. you've started with those physical symptoms. So if you struggle with anxiety, it can be a really powerful experiment to run, letting go of caffeine for a little bit and seeing how that impacts your anxiety. For my husband, anxiety is not a struggle. And we actually did an episode about foods that you can eat that have a really powerful impact on your body. And one of the foods that came up over and over again was chlorogenic acid, which is found in coffee and tea. Mm. It's super helpful for brain health, for longevity. It can have a powerful anti-cancer effect in your body. Mm -hmm. And that's found in coffee and tea. So I'm super happy with my husband consuming it. And you can get it in decaf coffee and tea as well. You oh. want to look for water processed decaf. But I get too anxious with even decaf. There's still caffeine in there. There's a little bit. There's not much. But for me, I just, it's my trust issues. Mm. Like I, I went through like, <laughs> I did this podcast episode and I was like, I'm going to become a decaf coffee girly. And then I'd go out to these fancy coffee shops and I was like, finally, I get to try all the cool drinks. I was so excited. But then I <laughs> didn't trust the barista. I was like, what if they mess up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I was so nervous because I will straight up have a panic attack if I drink coffee. And so it just, yeah. it was not, I'd be, I'd say, I'd do like three sips, I'd be like, I don't know. I think I feel a little dirty. Yeah, yeah. It's like so, psychosomatic. Yeah. This is the thing Emily always asks me when she's like, "What? How are you waking up without coffee or tea?" And I don't really even know how to answer it. I'm I, like, I'm you like, I wake do. up from the anxiety. Um, <laughs> what energizes you to wake up in the morning, if not that? 
There's a really great tip in the book that's if you just do a really small amount of exercise, like we're talking less than a minute, you can actually fight off that morning grogginess. They've done interesting in studies. Bed? No, no, you wait, you <laughs> okay. get out of bed, just do like a minute of jumping jacks. But they've done studies on firefighters and other people who need to be quickly awake and alert. And this Ooh. is doing like a minute of high intensity workout is one of the fastest ways to get there. For me, I do my circ walks. It's called, it's a circ walk, which is short for circadian rhythm. And it's a quick walk outside, talking 10 minutes, whatever you can do. Mm -hmm. But getting that sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning is going to set your circadian rhythm. And your circadian rhythm impacts 99% of the cells in your body. So people think that has to do with energy and sleep, and they are right. But it also has to do with your hormone health, your gut health, your microbiome is dictated by your circadian clock. So all of those cells in your body need to know what time it is. And by getting outside and doing a quick walk in the morning, as close to when the sun comes up and you wake up as possible, you're telling every single cell in your body, like, this is what time it is. Here's how you can set yourself for the day. Okay. Cool. You seem like somebody who has tried a cold shower before. <laughs> Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's sure that's she finishes all of her showers cold. I do. And does that help <laughs> Your research is impressing me. Oh, is this something that you heard on the podcast? Yeah. And you finish your wow. Does that have a waking up effect too? I'm just curious. Yeah, I'm I too definitely, scared to try it. it de it's, it's not as scary as you think. You take your normal shower, you make it warm, you like enjoy the experience. People are always like, do you have to like wash your hair cold? And I'm like, no, like, you do your normal experience. And then I like to put on a song because when you sing, it tones your vagus nerve, which can actually make you feel less anxious and a little bit calmer and stress-free in the moment. So I'll put on some Taylor Swift. I'll do my two minutes. And then you come out and you do. You feel energized. You feel ready to take on the day. When we did that cold plunge, I sang the entire time. Did, and did yes. you know about the vagus nerve thing or was that intuitive? No, I just know that music helps me. Like even when we go to a workout class, like if the instructor's like, you may sing, I'm like, good, I will be belting because it's going to help me get through this hardship. Yeah. There's research that shows that creating music with other people is one of the closest experiences to transcendence that we can have as human beings. Oh, yeah, wow. that makes sense. I it, mean, yeah. I mean, there's what so the much Beatles religious... were feeling was clearly transcendent. I think yeah. that that's what happened. What what's happening at the Beyonce concerts and the Taylor Swift concerts? Yeah, it's the performance that obviously these incredible world class performers are putting on. But it's also the feeling. And I went to the Eras tour three times, so I can wow. attest to this oh personally. I know it's all by all my money all summer. I was just like, this is that's such amazing. an incredible experience. Uh, but you're singing every single lyric to every single song with 75,000 other mm -hmm. people. There's no feeling like that on the planet. Not it's that religion community. isn't great in itself, but that's why people feel so connected when they're chanting together, when they're singing in church, when they're singing in temple. Yeah. The singing is, is the bonding thing. I know. And I think it's such a powerful part of religious... Uh, ceremonial, all those types of experiences. And I just, I do wish there were more secular ways to experience For it. For sure. And it's concerts. Yeah, concerts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of obsessed with your functional mocktails series that you've been doing because I'm on an alcohol-free journey. I try not to say sober because that's like a loaded word for a lot of people. Yeah. But are you alcohol-free? I don't really free? drink either. I call myself an intentional drinker, which just means that I, if I am having a drink, which I do from time to time, I love cocktails. I've had a cocktail probably once within the last few months, and I loved it. I love when you go to one of those fancy cocktail bars, and you're like, I want a cocktail that tastes like sky. And they're like, we got it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I love when it's just sort of like an esoteric experience. Um, but I call myself an intentional drinker, which just means that I'm not going to be coming home and pouring a glass of wine and having it habitually for no reason. If I have a drink, it's going to be part of a specific experience. I okay. think that's what I'll start calling it too, because like yeah. I will take a few sips of champagne if it's an important event and it requires a toast. We did a whole podcast series about the health impacts of alcohol last January. It's a really, really popular series. If you are interested in exploring your relationship with alcohol, I highly recommend it. The first two episodes are about the health impacts on your brain, on your hormones, on your gut health, on cancer. And then the last one answers all of people's struggles and challenges with beginning to eliminate alcohol or cut down their alcohol use in their life. And all of the doctors essentially said, universally alcohol is not good for your health. Like all of the myths around red wine, they're just that. They're myths. You would have to drink so much red wine to begin to get the amount of resveratrol that would have any sort of positive impact on your body. 
all of the studies that show any benefit of alcohol, they've been unable to extricate that from the communal aspect of drinking in community with other people. Right. All That's the, research, the fun part is the being with other people and having the conversations and a hundred percent. All of the research shows that alcohol, I kept asking them because I wanted to drink. I was like, what's the best type of alcohol? What's the best way to drink alcohol? And they're just like, fireball. It's not good <laughs> for you. You can choose to drink it, but choosing it, knowing that it's what impact it's having on your body is important. But almost all of the doctors that I interviewed still incorporated alcohol into their lives in specific ways. And to your point about the champagne, it was usually some type of ritual. Human beings have used alcohol in ritual for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And I think having a champagne toast at a wedding or celebrating something with something, you know, there's having so many- Having Shevitz at Passover. There's, yeah, I yeah mean, exactly. In Judaism, part of Purim is getting drunk. Like they tell you, <laughs> get drunk at Purim. That's mm -hmm. what it's there for. And and I, I mean, I didn't drink at Purim, but I did see that it bonded a lot of people. And I'm never going to tell people like you need to eliminate this thing completely from your life. I find in my own life that having very dogmatic restrictions around food, around alcohol, around mm -hmm. anything that I should or shouldn't be doing doesn't work for me. And it tends to lead to disordered thought patterns. But I do think that being really intentional and exploring the why behind what you're doing, a lot of people think that they need alcohol to be the person that they want to be. And it's so not true. You are already the person that you think alcohol is making you. If you think alcohol makes you feel comfortable in your body, there's a part of you that if you just let your walls down, that you can get in touch with that person who already feels comfortable in your body. If you think mm -hmm. alcohol lets you be a witty, sparkly conversationalist, there's a part of you that already is a witty, sparkly conversationalist. And there's nothing more powerful than stopping giving alcohol the credit for making you that person and being like, wait, that's me. All mm -hmm. alcohol is doing is letting me lower my defenses a little bit. I always and think about when we were children, like you would go to parties and you would dance and you would have so much fun. And that was way, way before anybody had any alcohol. And you yeah, would Capri make friends. Sun, that's all you need. Sure. The, the way <laughs> kids dance too, it I wish we could all dance like this. I know. I spent years, my husband was not that comfortable dancing when I first met him. And he's like, oh, I don't know if I'm a good dancer. And I'm like, the only thing that makes a person a good dancer is loving dancing, like going out there and feeling they're having a good time because dancing is just feeling the music, like vibing your body, all these things. And kids do that so naturally, the way they move and the Shake way, yeah, all of it. And it almost... It like breaks my heart a little bit to see people grow up and feel like they just have to like look a certain way while they're dancing. I've, I don't think that a bad dancer exists. If you're dancing, you're a good dancer. Yeah, we lose a lot of that confidence that we have as kids. Like even um, you ask any kindergartner, can you draw a giraffe? And they'll be like, yeah, I can draw a giraffe. But you ask any adult, and half the time they're like, oh, oh, I could absolutely never, not. Could never yeah. draw a giraffe, yeah. you know? If you're listening, you can draw a giraffe and you can dance. For sure. Do yes. you have any favorite mocktails just while we're on this subject? Honestly, my favorite, I share recipes on my page for mocktails. And I really put a lot of thought into like creating complexity and nuance and all these things. But one of my favorite things to do is just easy because I want to be able to do it in five minutes after work. And it's combining a sparkling water, a flavored sparkling water like Spindrift and a flavored vinegar like Acid League or oh. Side Yard Shrubs is one of my favorite ones. They use farm fresh vinegars, flavored vinegars. And you just do a splash of the vinegar in the sparkling water and it tastes amazing. And you can make thousands of combinations because there's so many flavors of sparkling water and so many flavors of vinegar. Does That's the vinegar so make it smell more like booze or? No, it just adds, again, the thing that booze brings to drinks is, I mean, other than like alcohol, my comments are rich in people being like, it can't be a cocktail because it doesn't get you messed up, you know? Yeah. So it brings that certainly, yeah. but it brings nuance and notes and complexity and sort of like a an like interest a to your tongue. Yeah. And so that's when you're trying to make a balanced cocktail. That's what you're adding. And uh, vinegar has that same thing. And also alcohol is a fermented product and vinegar is as well. That's why some people think that kombucha is like a nice replacement for alcohol. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. do kombucha. I'll do like small amounts in the morning if it's caffeine free. 
Uh, but yeah, it's not a nighttime drink for me. So yeah, I love mixing vinegar with sparkling water. Yeah, you did another one that I thought looked delicious that was with white tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming the white tea would add that complexity. The tea too. adds that complexity. Yeah, any type of tea is a really great thing to add to a mocktail if you want to have those. I'm not just drinking juice notes. Yeah. Do you notice an improvement in cognitive function or your overall mood when you limit alcohol? For me, it's anxiety. It's an anxiety okay. story. Like, again, one of the reasons that I have 18 sections in the book is because different people have different struggles and I want to be able to serve all of those people. Anxiety is my lifelong struggle. So everything that I'm doing in my life, I'm sort of measuring on that mental health benefit scale and getting rid of alcohol has been immensely helpful in helping me deal with my anxiety. It A huge thing that getting rid of alcohol does is it helps you sleep so much better. And when you're sleep deprived, it's really hard to have good mental health. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. That's actually what kicked off my alcohol-free journey was I would get so anxious. Well, I would drink to quell my anxiety, but then by the end of the night, I'd be 10 times more anxious. Yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. this is not- And especially in the morning and you have blood sugar anxiety. things that are happening mm. too with yeah. the alcohol consumption. My husband, for him, it was when we got our aura rings, which is a sleep tracker that you wear as a ring. Oh, and we yeah. love them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he got his and he saw the impact of drinking on his sleep. And once he was able to see it in cold, hard numbers, he was appalled. He was I'm like, going to get Ben one of those rings. <laughs> <laughs> so does he share in your mocktails? Is this like a yeah. Oh, yeah. couple thing? Yeah, he's do? he's if you go to my page, you get to see him reacting to all of them. <laughs> I, I love that. I have one more question. On the 100th episode of your podcast, you had your husband sift through listener submitted questions and ask you them so that you wouldn't know what was coming. Did you ever personally look through those questions yourself? And are there any you would have wanted him to ask? I don't remember the specific questions. I okay. didn't look through them. I gave them to him. But I yeah. do a Q&A on my Instagram every single Monday. And I get hundreds of questions every single Monday. And I try to answer the ones that most people seem to be interested in. Um, so people always have another shot to throw a question in. Cool. Nice. I'll be asking you lots of questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. When is your book coming out? How can we pre-order it? Tell us the deets. So the book comes out on October 17th. It's available wherever books are sold. But if you go to 100waystochangeyourlife.com, 100waystochangeyourlife.com, before October 17th and you pre-order it, you'll be entered to win a $1,000 credit to an airline of your choice Ooh. to fly wherever you want. Okay. Well, pre-order bonus. And then if you want to listen to my podcast, that's the Liz Moody podcast. You can listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to catch up with me on social, I'm Liz Moody on TikTok and on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much again for coming. Uh, you guys, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to send your questions to DST at Betches.com to get them answered and follow us at Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram. Yeah, guys, if you like this episode, please write us a review and don't forget to check out our DST merch on shop.betches.com. Rate, review, and subscribe. And please follow me at Lubination. And please follow me at Remy Casimir and follow Liz. And remember, we're always with you through thick and thin. Diet Starts Tomorrow is produced by Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Aliza Zinn. Editing by Sean Kilby. Social media by Aliza Zinn. Guest booking by Ali Friedlander. Be sure to follow Diet Starts Tomorrow on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send us your emails to dst at betches.com or your voicemails to 212-287-5650. Betches.